And we're back. Welcome to episode 258 of the In Squash podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson, and I'm delighted to have on a fantastic young talent today who's uh, creating a bit of a buzz of late. Uh, I believe he's currently ranked 57 in the world. Could be a little bit higher than that, but I think it's 57 right now. And he's moving up. His name is Charlie Lee, son of Danny Lee, uh, who runs the going to be uh, putting on the Optasia open in london uh in a few weeks time and charlie and i have a really uh, really great chat charlie recently won the guilfoyle classic in toronto a few weeks back and stuck around uh for a couple of weeks there to play in the b and r open in toronto where he fell to countryman tom walsh in the uh, quarterfinal and that event incidentally was eventually won by argentinian leandro romiglio but charlie and i uh, we had a few laughs about thriving uh, in the Canadian winters during that period while he waited to uh, while he was there in Toronto for the uh, to play in the BNR Classic or BNR Open, I should say. And then we move on to talk about uh, his win at Guilfoyle. We also take a look at his career to date and the struggles he's had with injury, in particular uh, dealing with chronic fatigue. Uh, and uh, he talks about how he was able. To overcome that and how he's uh, gotten back into uh, very good shape, feeling strong, feeling fit right now and playing perhaps the best squash of his career. Uh, his coach throughout most of his career has been his dad, Danny Lee. He's also worked for quite a while with, uh, with Rob Owen and uh, he talks about how instrumental uh, Danny, his dad, has been in his life along with uh, two players uh, at his uh, club there in London that he's worked with for quite a while, two players that he idolizes, his uh, older brother Joe and also uh, Tom Richards, a guy that uh, uh, both of those guys he looked up to and had the uh, the good fortune of training with and uh, watching train himself uh, during his younger years. And uh, we talk about his growth and how instrumental they were in that and how instrumental they've been in him growing uh, as a pro. So we have a lot to, uh, we covered a lot of ground, uh, Charlie and I, and I know you're going to enjoy uh, listening to that. But before we get into it, let's talk about the great sponsor of this podcast, Open Squash, the New York-based nonprofit dedicated to bringing thousands of new people into the sport by making it more accessible and more affordable for everyone. They've brought on board several like-minded pros like former world number one Ali Farag, who's playing tonight in the Canary Wharf, Victor Coin who's had a tremendous season. Gina Kennedy, who's back and play, back playing some of her best squash as well. Uh, and also uh, Nathan Lake, who's been uh, playing a fair bit. And uh, we talk a bit about Nathan and uh, Charlie's uh, admiration of Nathan's game as a player and as a person. Uh, at any rate, uh, they uh, Open Squash has several initiatives on the go, including the September 2023 grand opening of their new FIDI Acor facility. And I just read uh, earlier this week that the courts have arrived at the facility so they should be going up very soon so that's very exciting check out the website if you're interested in memberships there also they have a breakdown of their uh, discounted memberships if you're in the new york city area and you can check out the open squash apparel that is on offer including open squash tees and hoodies check out open squash at opensquash.org now episode 258 with charlie lee yeah it's great to great to finally meet you i know i've had your dad on i think maybe twice okay yeah right yeah nice. yeah the legend uh, danny uh, lee uh, but uh how's uh how's everything going you're in canada it's been been uh, a while i see you're bundled up there yeah i'm uh <laughs> staying at uh, a billet's house which is obviously one of the great things we get to do on the tour and meet loads of different families and they're kind enough to have us to stay particularly in this part of the world so that's where I am at the moment and uh in between tournaments so yeah just enjoying the process of being on tour really yeah yeah you're trying uh living the living the life of a Canadian there uh, I, I guess um <laughs> they had a bit of a uh, the last couple of weeks anyways they've had a bit of snow I don't know about in Toronto oh, yeah. but, but uh, where oh, my um, kids are yeah yeah, I've definitely been aware of that. I mean, after the semi-final of the last tournament, I was delaying my walk back to where I was staying because I was looking outside and it wasn't looking particularly inviting. And uh, unlike the rain in England, I was hoping it would... I mean, 
in the way of the rain in England. I was hoping it would just pass briefly, but it was a blizzard for a few hours and I had to trek back in my running shoes, which uh, weren't the best footwear for the occasion, let's say. <laughs> yeah, right on. Yeah, the uh, I mean, that's life in Canada. We used to embrace it. I mean, uh, I uh, I think back in when I was your university, you're, you're a bit old, you're 24, 25 now, Charlie, right? 24 yeah 24 yeah so uh, you know a bit younger than that i used to go out in the uh, sandals and wool socks <laughs> in, in the snow yeah yeah no that, I, I, I definitely don't fancy that after that experience the other day <laughs> but, uh, it, it might it must be sort of a novelty for you or or have you had that experience uh in canada prior um i've definitely seen lots of snow you know i was lucky enough to go on a few skiing trips and uh Mm. I've seen a bit of, you know, a fair amount of snow in my time, but uh, having to walk in running shoes and not be the best prepared, you know, without gloves and everything, um, that's probably the the strongest uh, snowstorm I've had to walk in, <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, we get to go to all these places. And I think even further out west in Canada, it's probably more intense, isn't it? Yeah, I can remember... Uh... You know, playing in uh, in Calgary and in, in one place that, that's extremely cold is Winnipeg, Winnipeg, oh, Manitoba. Yeah. And uh, I can remember I we were, it was a Canadian Nationals event or something. And we, were, we had all gone out to a social. We were outside just talking and I could not, that was actually the coldest I've ever been. <laughs> Win, Winnipeg, Manitoba, minus 30 or something crazy like that. Wow. Yeah, I think the the next tournament is there, but I'm um, I'm heading home, so I'll let the other guys embrace that. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit. I mean, Winnipeg hospitality it's hard to beat, though. I mean, they they do uh, you know you know make up for it with that, and and I'm sure as you as you're experiencing as well in Toronto. How how are you yeah. liking uh, the city? I mean, Toronto's one of the beauties uh, of North America. I mean, there's lots going on in the city. Yeah, I love it. I mean. Um, the first tournament was at the Cricket and Skating Club, which is um, a bit further north, I think, if I'm correct, um, of downtown. So we only went in the day after the tournament and had a little look around. I've been up the CN Tower before and stuff, so yeah, um, I've had the best view possible of the city, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's a great city. I love traveling to so many different places and seeing what's slightly different about all of them. Um Canadian people are generally absolutely lovely. So that's yeah. uh, a big bonus <laughs> too. So yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a great place to be. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, and you were, you've been in North America for a fair amount of the last couple of months, haven't you? You were in Philadelphia. Uh, now you're here in Toronto for the next, uh, well, been there yeah. for a couple of weeks. Yeah. I, I went home in between uh, the last tournament and this one because it was just a bit too long. Um it was, it felt quite yeah. short, you know, I, I got home and I just about got over the jet lag and then it felt like it was time to go again. Yeah. Um, back, back to Toronto. So, but that's, uh, that's a big part of what we do. So yeah, mm. I quite enjoy it. I guess that's the, uh, the nature of maybe the challenger series too. Quite a few of those events are, are hosted. Uh, I guess there are quite a few in North America as it turns oh, out. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a big part of the tour, both world tour and challenger tour. Um, there's a lot of tournaments over here. Um, so, yeah, it definitely spent end up spending quite a lot of time this side of the world. Um, and sometimes, you know, as is the way with smaller tournaments, they can't always be grouped together perfectly. So you right. do end up maybe going going back home um, for a week or two, get a few leagues in, get a block of training, mm. um, and then maybe come back to somewhere pretty close to exactly where you were. Um, I was going to ask you uh, later. You know, that's all part of it, and that's great. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you later on, but I might as well ask you now. I mean, uh, obviously, you're in Toronto, and um, uh, you've got you had a little bit of time between the last event and this event. So, um, have you? What have you been doing in terms of, of training? And you, you know, you're you're not with your your usual sparring partners, I would imagine. Uh, but I guess you you know quite a few of the guys uh, in and around the area, anyways. What's that when I'm back home or when no, I uh, now that you're back? in Toronto? Oh, in Toronto, yeah. I mean, yeah. when I got back for yeah, I mean, I got here a few days in advance of the the previous event and uh the first couple of days you're keeping it quite light. Um 
because obviously you know you want to the, the whole process of getting there is quite tiring and so you got to manage staying fresh while staying sharp um so i did quite a lot on my own the first couple of days and then yeah as more players start to arrive there's plenty of great hitting partners you know i hit with quite a few players in the draw ended up playing a couple of them later in the week so um yeah and uh yeah it's uh so yeah when you're at these tournaments there's definitely no shortage of uh, good hits and the training's different it's not like a normal week you're just purely focused on priming yourself for the event and making sure you're hitting the ball nicely and moving quite well and body's feeling good and fresh so that's all I was really focused on at that point yeah yeah I guess you don't want to push it too hard do you I mean uh... yeah it's a fine line because you don't want to go into a match flat you know I was in Hong Kong for the platinum recently and that was kind of with the very strict COVID rules. So, mm. you know, three days, we had to be there at least three days before, I believe, and uh, uh, ended up just being able to solo. So then you go into your match quite flat and uh, it, was, it was the same for everyone, but, you know, it's very hard to go from three days of solo, no matter how much ghosting or self-feeding you do. Uh, you can't quite replicate not knowing where the ball's going on someone else's racket. Um and those fast twitch movements that you need to replicate. So having that experience, you know, you don't want to go in undercooked, but you also don't want to go in tired. Um, so it's a real fine balance. And I think that just comes with experience. I think everyone gets it probably a bit wrong when they're younger and finds what works for them. You see some people almost doing a, a really hard match the day before or a few games or even in the morning off. And personally, that doesn't suit me as much. I like to keep it quite light on the day and, yeah, so again, it's just about finding what works for you. Yeah, for sure. Um, now, I know your dad, uh, he's a he's a musician, uh, has his yeah. own Danny Lee, uh, I forget the name of the band, the Danny Lee Trio or something along Just the uh, It's just the Danny Lee band, actually. So it's, okay. uh, it's not that well, hard I, to I was going to recommend that you, uh, there's a, there's a, um, a very famous uh, club in Toronto where, where the, a lot of music, I think the music that your dad would love uh, as well, it's called The Horseshoe. So if okay. you were, if you were, uh, I don't know if you get 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 the chance to get out uh, into downtown Toronto, and I'm not even sure if that club's still around, but uh, but a lot of the the great musicians that your dad would uh, love or or does love would have played there. It's kind of just a little, okay. um, it's like a bar, it's a small place, small venue, but an iconic Canadian venue called the uh, the Horseshoe. So maybe and that, well that. Right. Is that a lot of famous artists that go and play there over the years? Or yeah, yeah, it's a, everybody. Sort of like Neil Young. I don't know if your your dad. Oh wow, yeah, yeah. Young is he's uh, definitely introduced me to all his favorites and uh, yeah, yeah, our well, taste somewhat crosses over. Around. Maybe not with the more modern stuff. He claims that he knows a few things that I listen to, but yeah. I'm not so sure sometimes. <laughs> no, I definitely don't know my daughter's playlist very well. Although I, I did get a chance to listen to it over the summer uh, on long drive yeah. that we took, and some of it's quite good. Uh, I have to admit. So uh, yeah, nothing beats Neil Young though. Um, no, he's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of his. Oh really? Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rocking in the free Heart world. Heart of gold. That's a good Heart song. Heart of gold. Yeah. Can can yeah. you play? I'm, I'm sure you must play a little bit of guitar. Can you play that one? Uh, that's a little bit, probably not to play. Probably not as well as Neil Young, um, but <laughs> I can give it a little go. But yeah, I'm not. I'm very much, you know, I've never made enough effort to get any good. I can just play a few chords quite poorly, and I'm not sure I can put them together consecutively. So, yeah. Well, you and <laughs> yeah. I, uh, if we get together, we can we can form a, a band, our own band, because I'm, yeah. I'm saying I've, I've got three chords and uh, poorly played as well. So. Well, I've got about four, so we should be looking quite good. There we go. Okay, you can, you can play the F. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, but yeah, huge congrats on the win in Toronto, by the way, Charlie. Uh, the Guilfoyle, uh, the Squash Classic. Uh, you were unseeded in that event, but you took out uh, the second, the fourth, the sixth, and the seventh seeds, uh, uh, getting uh, eventually raising the title, including a... Canadian uh, national champion, number one, David Bayer-Jean, Nathan Lake, which is a huge win uh, for you, Kurt, and one of your countrymen in the final, uh, Curtis Malik. So I guess, uh, you know, everyone's so close uh, there in the rankings. I'm just wondering, uh, did you feel that despite being uh, unseeded, there there was a bit of parity there anyways and that you had a good chance uh, going in to win it? Yeah, I definitely, you definitely get that feeling. Um, I think it, 
in that kind of tournament I'm all, you, every, everyone before was looking at it thinking wow this is this is extremely strong for for you know 12k uh, challenger 10 level tournament um but ultimately yeah everyone in there um is of the great level and you've just uh got to put it together that week and uh fortunately for me you know things came together and I was confident um I could do it but I definitely you know, I'm not going into the tournament thinking I'm going to win this. Like looking that far ahead, it really is match by match because you just can't afford to get that far ahead of yourself. And uh, so, yeah, fortunately, a few things came together. Um, I've been working hard. So, yeah, I always have a good amount of belief in my ability against those those guys in that draw. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, you look at the rankings, I think right now you're at your highest ever. You're at 50, 57 in the world yep. right now and um i mean you look at guy i mean a guy like nathan lake who i rate i rate very highly i mean he for a yeah he's hand, fantastic he such great hands, fantastic squash he? player yeah he's one of the best you know squash players out there for sure like in terms of pure ball striking and and accuracy he's he's unbelievably good yeah yeah and so how did that match play out i mean he he's a big guy he's a fair player he, he moves the ball around yeah. well he himself moves well so uh, what was it? How did you feel? At, at, that must have given you a huge amount of confidence uh, having picked up a, a win like that. Yeah. Um, actually, we played earlier in the year in Cleveland as well. And and I got the I got the win in that one. So obviously that that gives you a little bit of extra confidence and not obviously results are there's a lot that goes into it. But yeah, having that in the back of my mind certainly helped. Um, so, yeah, I I think he started the better and he he got the first game um his accuracy you know as i i was leaving the ball on his racket quite a lot which you just cannot afford to do because he'll just put it away um and then fortunately for me you know i was able to sort my tactics out a little bit better and start to hit the corners a little bit more which as, as the match wore on that was more and more in my favor so and uh yeah i think then when you start to feel like you're playing quite well you can relax a little bit more and let the arm go and um, play a bit more freely. So that's the short version of what happened, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it was a great, I mean, like I said, you know, two, four, six, and seven, uh, you know, you did, you 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 took them all. Um, you weren't seated in that event, right? You yeah, I was, I was ninth seed, which for where my ranking was at the entry was, felt like a bit crazy uh, you expect <laughs> yeah. to be you expect to be top four minimum in those sort of tournaments but I've said before I think um I'm not too faced by the seedings ultimately you've got to beat what's in front of you and if you enter those tournaments it's just a number by your name you know I could be number one and face someone in, of an extremely high level in the first round or you know so you just have to take it match by match it sounds like a cliche but you really do yeah uh, definitely. Uh, uh, now you were named uh, Challenger Series uh, Player of the Month uh, not too long ago. I think it was following your win in Philadelphia. So Challenger Series has, uh, I guess, treated you pretty well of late. Um, just talk about the importance of it, because we've seen, you know, for example, uh, Commonwealth Games gold medalist uh, Gina Kennedy. She rattled off like, I don't know how many, eight, ten 11 challenger series yeah. wins in a row and and you know her ranking was like below 200 or something and then she she catapulted yeah. up there to you know basically where she belonged but uh what what in your estimation is the the beauty of the, the challenger series because it's obviously a place where you can you can generate a lot of points and generate a lot of momentum and then find yourself like you do uh, uh coming up in in the Optasia in that event i think are you i'm not sure if you're a wild card in that event i'm a wild card for that yeah yeah but you've got yourself you know you want to get yourself in those positions more often via your, yeah. your ranking so is that the beauty of the challenger series in your estimation yeah it's a massive part of any pro player's journey obviously you get the exceptions like gina who was you know coming out of college and at an extremely high level anyway so it was more a facility for her to collect the points necessary um to get to where she should be at that time and then obviously like people like Mustafa Sal I think I remember he plowed through a few 10ks when he was very young in South America and that took Literally. him to where he needed to be <laughs> um took him to where he needed to be uh ranking wise to then get in the big events and then you start getting the wins in those so 
I think, yeah, as much as it's a part of collecting those points, it's also a big part of the process of like being a, a better player. You have to learn, ultimately, you have to learn how to get through events and play four or five matches in a row, tough matches, mm. arguably in tough, tougher conditions sometimes because it's not quite as perfectly set out all the time. You might be on a a slightly more, you know, older court or caught with some funny bounces and they're not you know you, it's all a bit more unpredictable um what's the so, temperature yeah. like there in canada on the courts because i can remember back in the day on the on the old concrete courts that you'd get you get a bit of a gallery above the court maybe one a little bit below yeah. the court but it'd be freezing in the winter uh no it felt in the clubs that i'm at the cricket club and the bnr they've it's pretty well heated so yeah. it feels it doesn't feel too hot or too cold it's it's pretty perfect so yeah. I has, the fact that it hasn't crossed my mind means that it must be right <laughs> um <laughs> there's different speeds to the courts and different grippiness and i think that's the, that would be the case in the world tour as well with the glass mm -hmm. courts especially you know when they're set up in non-squash venues um they can play a bit different on certain days how many people are watching can affect it mm -hmm. the warmth of the venue the you know the intensity of it so but yeah you get a bit more i'd say from my experience there's just more unpredictability on the challenger tour so to to come through those events is really character building and uh in in some cases and uh it's a great foundation to hopefully go on to the bigger events and go deep into those because you need to know how to do it is there is also something uh, i guess officiating might be something you need to navigate as well because obviously you're probably not getting uh you know, uh, you know, the Roygen gels and, and, and the likes that are there regularly, you're probably getting provincial or county level uh, officials. So uh, yeah. is that something you need to bear in mind uh, as a player? Um, it, it can affect it sometimes. You know, you do end up with some, some you know, unpredictable referees. Uh, I think it's also from my experience quite regional based, like mm. how they make certain decisions, you know. I remember being playing in Australia and the lines they were taking on certain situations were completely different to what we'd expect in Europe or in North America, for example. Like, So I think you just have to get a feel for it very quickly in the match and try and adapt um, because that's that's the situation you're faced with and you can't change it at that point. So um, it's the same for everyone. And uh, I'm sure every ref's trying their best. They're not trying to... It's, it's an extremely hard sport to referee, but, you know, there are many different interpretations of the rules and particularly in Challenger Tour, they get one look at it and then it's gone. And, um, you know, if if they're getting that slightly wrong from the player's perspective, that can lead to some, you know, ugly matches where things are getting taken advantage of or certain situations. A player might feel that they're getting rewarded for a certain movement and... Mm or vice versa. So yeah, that can create situations like that, but you see that at all levels, I, I think. Um, but it can just be a bit more unpredictable lower down maybe. Yeah. Yeah. We saw, I mean, I just <clears throat> watching most of the, the black ball there and uh, I mean, they, I'm not, I wouldn't say they make mistakes, but it, it can be unpredictable, <laughs> even, you know, at the highest levels, but I'm just, yeah. uh, just wondering like a, a maybe, just in terms of the PSA and their communications with you, is that uh, as players, is it something like may, maybe they might say, you know, please just be wary, you know, the, the officials aren't, uh, the, they aren't professionals and, and uh, you have to bear that, that in mind as, as a, as a player on the tour, they're going to do their best, but. Yeah, I think okay. I saw, I think I saw recently that they're, they're making a push to get professional referees now. Um, which is great news, I suppose, because then that creates a little bit more accountability. Um, because at the moment, you know, it is it is just people who have uh, other sources of income. They're sort of doing it on a, an expenses basis, I think. So obviously, you know, it is hard to for them to probably invest the time necessary to to uh, be at the standard that you know players might expect at all times. Um, so yeah, that's that's definitely a positive thing that I've seen, and uh, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, that's probably no, um, what I think. Yeah, uh, uh, like you said, officiating is an extremely difficult 
job and, and you know you get all mm-hmm. sorts of you know characters and, and temperaments out there so it, it can i can just imagine how difficult it might be i wouldn't want i mean i've, I've officiated a few uh you know league matches and stuff and they can get ugly and, and it's not fun yeah <laughs> yeah and it's often you know you see i've i've been a, a culprit of it when i was younger and probably you know the way sometimes there's dialogue between player and referee is not something that you'd see in many other scenarios mm. between two people. So sometimes I think <clears throat> players have to be accountable for not only the way they're moving um, and what they're asking for, what they're clearing, um, but also the way they sort of address referees because it can be a bit unsavory at times. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I have this. I was going to ask you a bit later, but a guy like Mustafa Saul, obviously, uh, he's he's got his issues with his movement, and, and uh, people talk a lot about that. But one thing I noticed with him is, uh, you know, when he's you know debating, no, I wouldn't say debater, or has an uh, an issue with an official, he doesn't address them in you know in a, in a sort of a the, his tone is relatively uh, respectful, uh, I would say. I mean, his movements are patterns are, 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 you know, at issue, but the way he responds to referees, I, I, I find it to be, you know, he just looks back and gets on with it. Yeah. I think, um, certain players, you know, it's a skill in itself to remain calm, um, when they're playing at such high intensity to keep the, um, the rest of it calm is, is a skill in itself. Um, because ultimately there's such big, things at stake and everyone's training so hard every day. So it is hard to kind of calm down in that split second and, uh, and address it in the right way. Um, so, yeah, I think generally that that's probably improved the way that res- referees are being addressed, but maybe the review system helps that because, mm. you know, instead of being angry and feeling like it's the final result, you can, in, in those bigger tournaments, they can sort of say, uh, okay, let's just go for a review and hopefully it gets the right result. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I think it's important that there's that that respect between player and referee and, and also the way referees talk to players. Um, I think that's important too because if they come in overly, offend, uh, overly aggressive or they get the tone slightly wrong, um, then a player can that might cause a player to react adversely later on in the match or, you know, they might feel like they're being harshly punished for something that's, uh, you know, they're not actually committing. So it's probably up to both parties to to get it right. And it's a fine line and it's not always possible to get it right. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think it was on Twitter. You you retweeted or you might have uh, had a comment on Nick Matthew when, when he, uh, I think we t- I talked about it with him on, on my podcast. He was talking about... Uh, you know how rugby in rugby the players look up to the officials uh, to the to mm-hmm. the referees it's like you know they don't say anything you know they, they just listen yeah. right and that that's yeah. kind of what we should sh- strive for in squash although i mean squash is so you know the, the officiating is highly uh, subjective unfortunately yeah often as well the referee's so far from the court that you can't even get a conversation so often the players trying to say something like you know, they might be go. The referee might be thinking they're talking about a decision, and they're saying, "No, I want you to look up the pickup." Or, yeah, and they just can't. They can't hear because they're simply so far away. So, there are difficulties that are faced with this, the way the sport sets up and everything. I do think probably the ref could sit a bit closer. Um, sometimes they're so far back in the crowd that you think, "Is that the best view?" Um, but it might be for TV purposes or whatever. Um, I'm not too sure, but yeah, definitely rugby for all its flaws in terms of it might be hard to understand the decisions. I think they've got it quite right in the terms of officiating. You know, it's very um, clear what's going on in the whole decision-making process is actually everyone can hear what they're saying on TV. Mm -hmm. Um, The review process is often very efficient. And I think only the captain can speak to the referee. Um, So all the players, you know, no matter how harshly they think they've been, penalized on a decision the captain will just walk up to the ref and literally have a very calm conversation which i think is pretty good yeah i think that's uh yeah a good example for other sports yeah for sure. especially as a football fan i think the way they 
go around the referee sometimes isn't the best. <laughs> no, it's not. No, in the way they, they flop uh, when they they haven't been hit. We've we've seen a little a little bit of that on on, on the pro squash tour uh, uh, lately. <laughs> yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe, yeah. But uh, yeah. now you've got the uh, tomorrow. I think your first round at the the B and R, or is it today or tomorrow? Uh, yeah. It's tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow, yeah. The B and R open there in Toronto. You're seated in this one, number number seven, maybe. Uh, yeah. Uh, but the, you've had uh, those that are above you, obviously, uh, you've had some success recently against them. So I guess you've got the same mindset uh, heading into this one as well. Yeah, exactly the same um, as my last two events. So, yeah, just trying to I think it's a fine, fine line. You've got to just keep trying to do what works for you and not get distracted, not listen to the noise that comes with winning those events. So that would be the goal for me this week. and hopefully I can get that right and be successful again. Um, and yeah, I'm not interested in the number by my name or those of my opponents. So yeah, same again, really. Yeah. Uh, good luck in the, in the event. You're up against a guy from Hong Kong, Wan Chi Him. Uh, yeah. Were you familiar with, with, uh, with Wan? I've never played him before, but I've, I've played a lot of tournaments that he's been in and, uh, yeah, I've watched a few of his matches. So, um, yeah, it'll be a, another tough battle for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they generally they put you know, they have a very strong uh, you know squash program there. I think Chris Robinson mm. was there for quite a while, and uh, yeah, Peter I think Jennifer, Pete Jennifer's running there. running it now. Yeah, yeah. he's obviously, so, I mean, obviously, obviously fantastic coaches. Um, yeah. yeah, they generally produce very skillful players, um, very fit as well, and quite explosive around the court. So, um, yeah, it's going to be another tough battle for sure. Yeah, one hundred percent. Now, uh, so uh, now you've got the uh, the Optasia coming up coming up as well. So uh, mm-hmm. you, I think uh, you're wild card in that event, but you've got uh, the draws out. I think you're playing Abdullah uh, Al Tamimi in the first that's round. Right. So I mean, yeah. he, I mean, that's probably not a bad first round draw. Uh, I, I mean, he's a he's a very talented guy. He's had some big wins uh, this season, but uh, he's a guy who's right sort of. He's kind of doing what you're you're trying to to do. You're trying to get up to where he is. I think there's so many guys that are that are pretty close at that level, like from 50 through 20. Mm. It's mm. very it, there's a lot of parity there. So uh, yeah, I think on any given day, anyone can beat anyone. So um, that gives me a lot of uh, belief. And uh, but yeah, it's more about what I do on that day. I'm not focused on again trying not to be too cliche but it's really not about the opponent um necessarily if i can get my preparation and my my squash right on the day i know i stand a great chance so um that's all i'm focused on and you know it's going to be a great event to be a part of so just trying to enjoy that and uh soak up the atmosphere and enjoy my squash on there and yeah hopefully it goes well they're going to have the the wimbledon the london crowd behind you i'm sure <clears throat> Yeah, lots of uh, friends and family, hopefully, and uh, people that I've come across in the Surrey slash London squash scene. So hopefully it'll be a great atmosphere. It definitely was last year. Um, my brother played in that one and uh, <clears throat> it was a brilliant tournament. So, yeah, hopefully same again and more um, because that's that's what you want as a player, you know, to play in those great atmospheres. And that's what I'm hopefully going to keep doing if I progress up the rankings. Yeah, one hundred percent. So now your dad, uh, you know, you just mentioned your brother Joe and yourself. He's brought brought up two talented uh, uh, aspiring pros. So Dan is is he he's still listed as one of your coaches? I, I guess he still gives you some guidance and stuff. I've had him on the podcast. Uh, yeah, um, and uh, and his love for the game is, is infectious. Uh, every time I yeah. speak to him, it's just uh, you know I want to keep talking. I don't want I don't want it to end. <laughs> But uh, what has it been like uh, over the years uh, with him in your corner, both um, both as I guess as a, you know your father and as a as a coach? Yeah, I've been very lucky. Um, he's always been <clears throat> really good, um, both as a coach. You know, we work together really closely from all all the way through, even you know, and uh, along the way, you know, I I've learned so much from him. He's taught me from the age of whenever I could pretty much hold a racket, Mm. um, at St. George's and, uh, yeah, 
and he also you know one of the best things is he's stayed very relaxed about he's never been you know too pushy or anything like that if I wanted to it was always up to me whether I wanted to play squash not he wasn't sort of pushing me to do it for other reasons or whatever so well he's uh certainly fueled my passion for the game and been a massive if not the biggest part of why I'm able to be a pro squash player right now so um yeah I'm very grateful for all, all that have you ever and tried- we continue and we continue to to get on court now and talk about the game a lot and you know we spend a lot of time together and we're really close so yeah um he's a massive part of my career for sure have you ever tried his crazy the crazy frame that he used to play with back in the day? I forget. I forget the. Uh, does he still it's have called, those lying around the the house? I think it's locked away in a in a dark cupboard. Um, <laughs> he's only got one. I think there was something whereby there was only a couple of really good quality prototypes ever made, and he was disappointed with the uh, production when it was mass produced. It was called the Shark, and it was right, kind of a. Shark, yeah a sort of lopsided square shape <laughs> could only be played with one way to sort of uh, get the ball when it was close to the wall or whatever. But he certainly claims it had a, it had a uh, positive effect, but it's a bit of a crazy idea. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm not, I've not been allowed to hit with it because in, in fear of it breaking and it's the last okay. remaining one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah. Certainly an eccentric so he, idea. What's the story behind it? Like, did he actually, play like i know he played on tour for he was a he played professionally did he play with that model for a while or was it just a a lark i think he i think he did um i don't know how how regularly there was certainly some <clears throat> there was certainly a match against adrian davis who's another player of that era obviously yeah. very talented and i think i think it was eight all in the fifth and my dad or Adrian sometimes rings him up still to this day to uh, talk about it. And uh, I think he brought it out because obviously those days it was set one or set two. And maybe I, I I don't know if I got this completely right, but he's brought it out for set one, um, eight all <laughs> oh, in the fifth. And he, he hit a nick off it or something. And Adrian Davis still rings him up today saying, you know, you brought out the shark racket and that, that that square racket. I can't believe you did that and all that. So uh, yeah, <laughs> so he, he, I think he definitely used it, and it he, he got he a bit of winner on that eight all the, at the point. Of yeah, the, I think yeah. I think he won it with the shark. That was the that was the whole thing, and uh, Adrian Davis couldn't believe it. I think that's the story anyway. Certainly, that's how it's told. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm not sure how regularly it was used. It definitely got a lot of publicity. He claims that it. Uh, it might have been uh, like a trailblazer in terms of new materials for squash rackets. I think it was right at the time of uh, when rackets were sort of changing from wooden to maybe graphite. Um, mm. But again, I'm not 100% sure. Right. But yeah, <laughs> certainly eccentric and synonymous of that sort of era. Plenty of eccentric characters around back then, I think. Awesome. Yeah, that's really, the, that's amazing. Yeah, when I saw the picture of it, I just, I couldn't believe like you could actually... <laughs> make contact with the ball it must have created some funny spins because the strings are at an angle and yeah i'm not quite sure i'd love to have a hit with it if you'll ever let me but let's see yeah i guess it was maybe quite a bit to do with gamesmanship you know bring this thing out and you know i don't know maybe his other one was broken yeah i'm not sure i'm not sure (laughs) i have to ask i'll have to ask danny next time around go go into depth on the shark yeah yeah i think that'd be a core core um listenership that would be interested in that for sure yeah um now i know uh, a couple of years back squash you did you did an interview with squash mad and uh in the story you cited there were several players uh that influenced you uh over the years as a junior and even up until today uh one uh was obviously your your older brother i guess joe is your older brother right uh, yeah you- he's yeah. uh between eight and nine years older yeah and then uh, Tom uh, Tom Richards, uh, who retired last year from the from the pro game. So, talk about uh, how they influenced you, uh, especially you know Tom. Uh, obviously, was such a mainstay on the tour and a very talented player. Uh, you know, always yeah. great to watch. Very sort of dynamic in the way that he played. Uh, um, so, sort of, what impact did they have on on you as a player over the years? I think just as a junior, you know, with the age difference, I was you know, 
basically idolizing them in terms of training at my club. We're very lucky to have such a high quality um, of player. And that, that's also down to what my dad created with the junior program, you know, loads of junior national champions and players that actually went on to have successful pro careers, particularly Joe and Tom. Um, so yeah, that was awesome for me as a, you know, 10 to whatever, finishing my junior career, watching those guys, um, doing really well on the pro tour. Tom got to highest of 12, um, played for England multiple times in a really strong era when you basically had to be top, top 10, top 15 to get in the team. Um, and Joe got to 29 and national final and all that. So yeah, watching them and seeing how they trained and what they had to do day to day. Obviously I was at school probably during the hours they trained, but I'd see what they did a lot and, uh, pester them for hits now and again and they'd they'd take me up on that which was great for my development and really inspiring like to see that close hand and I was really lucky to have that um to sort of see what it took and inspire me to to take on that life as I have now so yeah do you still see uh is Tom still around uh he's not playing much anymore he had a really unfortunate knee injury towards the end of his career um so he's working in a different field now. Um, he did play a few Surrey Cup matches for us at the start of the season, but I'm not sure. <laughs> like I was away at that point, so unfortunately I didn't see him. But we're going to meet up soon, hopefully. Like we're we're good friends, so it'll be good to catch up and hopefully he can get back to playing league for us because he'll be a great great asset to the team as always. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, you still get guys guys who've retired from the PSA tour. It doesn't mean that they. Uh... They're retired from squash. I think people forget. No, yeah. no I think he <laughs> loves the game. Like and... Nick Matthew, he's still he's still yeah. out there doing really well in, in those leagues. So, Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's still, you know, there's so much experience with those guys that doesn't matter how much training they've done. You know, I played Daryl Selby in the league the other night. He's, I think he's doing more running than squash now, but yeah. it was still, he's still hitting some classy shots and moving amazingly well for, for how much he's playing. So, you know, there's so much experience. They know how to win squash matches and uh, certainly hard opponents on on a Wednesday night in league. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, um, over the, the years, I think uh, there have been, over the in the history of the game, there have been players who've suffered from uh, issues with fatigue. You look at, uh, like, Peter Marshall suffered from chronic yeah. fatigue syndrome. Uh, more recently, maybe Gina Kennedy's kind of suffered with injury and, some things really perhaps related to her training. Uh, Joel Macon is another guy who who's had some issues, but obviously recovering really well uh, of late. So uh, just want, I mean, you've also, uh, I think had some issues with, with fatigue in the past. So uh, give us some background on that, because this is something that, that that's kind of, I think we need to be maybe more aware of, you know, players have to be aware of how hard they should train and taking breaks and, and things like that. Yeah. What, what's your experience been and how have you, uh, I think, overcome uh, those issues? Um. So, yeah, there's there's no easy, there's no short answer for sure. Um, so to start in terms of how it came about, it was definitely a result of a few things, um, overtraining, um, you know, we had an extremely hard summer. I was training alongside Joel and a lot of the other guys in Birmingham. Um, and the training that he's able to do is is pretty incredible. I think he must be one of the, well, if one of the, if not the hardest trainer on the tour from what I've seen. Um, and what he's able to do day to day is is incredible physically. So um, we're all sort of following that program. And I think I felt really fit and I went into the season having done a really hard block obviously and then I think I I got got ill with a virus or something and uh just never really got back to 100% and you're so caught up in the fact that you've trained hard and you've worked so hard so you now want to put that into your results and you've got to play the tournaments I've worked so hard I can't take a week off and I just got caught up in that basically and um you know, cemented that tiredness really for, and it ended up lasting 16 months where I was feeling shocking 
having done any sort of exercise. Um, and I think fortunately, you know, I've definitely heard about Peter Marshall's experience and stuff. And I think it, his was to the point where he was struggling to, you know, walk around and stuff. For me, I was feeling okay day to day. Um, and some that was also a big part of why it was quite tough mentally because wake up some days and think I'm fine. Like I need to go and train and I've made the whole thing up, <laughs> that sort of feeling. And then you go and train and sorry, be sorry what, what do you mean you made, you, you made it up. So it was like you No, in terms of that mental warfare with like internal mental torment where yeah. I'd feel terrible. And then one day you'd wake up and think, oh, I feel great again. This is it's over now. I'm going to feel good. And, yeah. go and try and this was at, in the first few months where I wasn't really sure what was going on um, mm -hmm. and then I'd go and train and it could be a day or two later then it would all kind of come crashing down like a hangover sort of effect from the training mm -hmm. <clears throat> so <clears throat> that was really tough to come to terms with mentally and kind of got to the point a few months later where I had to accept that I needed to take a complete break from squash physically and mentally um, which I was really reluctant to do for for months at the start um and at that point i think it was when i when i accepted that that's what i had to do that's when i started to see a turnaround um but it was really tough yeah because i i was going quite well at that stage i got to a decent level ranking wise and i was pushing up quite well for my age and stuff and and then to kind of see that come to a halt and uh see all my kind of close rivals continuing on and the tournaments continuing obviously i'm from a very it's a squash family in some ways so it's hard to get away from the game in that sense but that's where i really start to turn around and uh then fortunately I, I made it back to tournament play in february 2020 and then uh covid <laughs> right. covid happened so that kind of extended that for another year or so didn't play another psa till summer 21 i think was that sort um, of a blessing in disguise did it give you more of I an think, opportunity to i think it cover i think it was um because you know throwing myself back into flying and everything i'm immersed in that right now and it's it's definitely tiring in itself that whole process of that so to go from just building it up for a few months to to throwing myself back into that which is what i was about to do um may not have been the right call so yeah it was a blessing in disguise i'd say but i probably would have rather it didn't go on for another year <laughs> yeah, yeah. um but anyway yeah my le i've taken a lot of lessons from that and that's all i can do i i just have to see the lessons and draw on those experiences and it definitely gives me more hunger now to to achieve more and i feel fresh i feel you know i'm 24 but i feel like i've got those extra years in me and uh those three years that i missed they'll you know they might pay dividends at the end of my career or you know so yeah there's definitely positives although it was extremely tough but um yeah i'd sort of say it is a really fine line to tread between like i was saying at the start about tournaments between staying fresh and doing enough it's uh it's very tough yeah yeah, uh, I guess there's something to be learned for anyone out there listening right now. I mean, uh, you know, any young squash player or any, any squash player who, you know, might feel that they've done a little too much. Uh, maybe mm -hmm. they maybe they're, they're tri they trick themselves into thinking, I've got to do the training, I'm going to do it anyways. <clears throat> I did it, actually, I did that yesterday. I, I had a little bit of an issue with my, my hamstring, but I went for a run anyways. And I basically mm -hmm. uh, limped off the track afterwards. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's tough, I, isn't it? I wanted especially to especially in squash, especially in squash. Like there's a real, I think often because because of the way squash is, you end up doing quite a lot on your own back, like without necessarily the the guidance of a a full team around you. Certainly at the lower levels, um, you know that attention every day. You know you see the footballers that train. They've got video. There's probably four or five staff watching their every move and tracking everything. Um, and a lot of that's down to us as squash players. It is possible to do it yourself, but obviously you have to invest a, a lot of time to do that. And that's what I've got better at these days. And I think that's paying off now. Um, but it is hard. You know, there's a real culture of of doing too much. I think squash players generally overtrain. Um, but then, you know, that is what gives you that mental resolve in those tough moments because it is there's no sport that quite compares um 
in terms of the movements and the repeated speed that you have to do. So you do have to prepare yourself for that. That's the bottom line. But it's uh, it's a fine line between backing out of those sessions in order to not do too much and and remaining mentally strong, knowing that you've put yourself through enough to to win you those tough matches. Because ultimately, when you get to that top level, it is brutal. So yeah, you have to prepare for that. But there's smart ways of doing it, and I think I'm hopefully on the right track now and I know what I'm doing a bit better and uh, that will hopefully stand me in good stead. Yeah. For sure. The, I mean, you mentioned uh, Joel uh, earlier and talking about how, you know, just amazing he is in terms of his ability to, you know, the the training that he does. We saw it last week. I I couldn't believe like some of the rallies that that he was playing and some of, you know, Mm. the way he was winning these matches. And it just made it made me laugh when they. I think it was the was it the um, yeah the the Sherbaggy uh, match at, at the end when they interviewed him. He looked like Rocky. Uh, after. <laughs> you know, he had the big yeah. cut over the eye and the blood blood was streaming down. Yeah. Um, no big big respect to him for that because he got a real whack there. Oh yeah, that was. That I was think. A- I think most players would have probably rightly so taken a little a little break. Uh, just to at least clean it up, but he just walked over and returned serve. So, yeah, if everyone played like that, it would be, you know, we can't expect that from everyone because that is, you know, almost, you know, borderline. He probably should have got it looked at, but he ended up winning the match. So fair yeah. play and uh, yeah, respect for that. He's got that kind of rugby like mentality, hasn't he? Where you just well, carry his whole on. Mindset. I was so impressed. Like even after he beat Cole, he basically he just said, you know, I know I can beat these guys. And then after he beat Narwan, yeah. I know I can beat these guys. Uh, he mm-hmm. had, it seems like he flipped the switch because he obviously he he struggled against these guys uh, previously, but I, I think he realizes that you know he's probably stronger than most of them physically. Uh, maybe not Paul right. Cole, but he has the the game also to do that. I think Tarek went, went he lost to him, but uh, the sort of clash in in uh, squash styles there, Tarek's style and his style i think it's sort of advantageous more mm. to, to Tarek just the way he plays the game but uh he almost yeah. won that one too so i think it's great you know there's it's so close in that top bracket of players now i think on any given day they can all be each other there's obviously those probably four or five of them that are more consistently reaching the latter stages um and i think looking at the rankings it's so close that we could almost have a new number one on any given week at the moment because those points are so close between Mustafa, yeah. Diego, Mohamed, Ali and Paul, I think. Um, yeah. So it makes it really exciting. I don't think we've seen, you know, I'm, I'm sort of hopeful that maybe next season we'll see them all playing to their best at the same point. Um, yeah. Because, you know, in recent times we've not always seen that, but it's so hard. There's so many tournaments. Uh, so to stay consistent, through all that and all the travel and those brutal matches is is uh I imagine very tough. <laughs> yeah. But it's I mean, great for the game. You know, we're seeing such variety of uh winners at the moment. Yeah, definitely. I mean everyone thought I think most people might have picked Asal to win this when he loses in the first round. And then mm. Diego uh was the player in form and then he he loses to uh to Sherbaggy and yeah. uh, you know, Cole loses, uh, and Mar. I thought, uh, I thought actually, uh, Marwan was playing well. I mean, even against uh, um, uh, Joel. I mean, that that was a great yeah. match to watch. That was a fantastic match. Yeah. Did you see when when he walked over Joel to was it? Did, yeah, I saw that. that over was great. to hit the ball. <laughs> yeah. Well, we want people to play everything, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was that was amazing. But uh, yeah, it was great. Yeah, one thing I noticed in, in most of the matches uh, this time is that there, it, it didn't seem like there were many poor officiating moments. Uh, there were a few, but uh, none of which uh, decided the matches. And the players, for the most part, you know, they were playing the ball, and uh, there there was minimal, you know, they were playing through minimal interference. It seemed for the most part. Mm. So, how has it been for you uh, as a player over the last little while in terms of uh, the the officiating move? to penalize uh, players when they're, you know, sort of asking for soft lets or, or fishing for strokes uh, when they basically could have played the ball. So basically do you, do you think players should be 
penalized or uh, or have we lost track of what a simple, you know, basically a simple let? Because I see a lot of simple lets where there's, you know, you bump into someone on your way to the ball and you're not, you're not being given a let anymore. It's a no let because yeah. you could have basically could have played it, right? Mm. I think, yeah, I think it's all stemmed from, you know, there were matches in the in the past, maybe in the 90s and 2000s where uh, there just was a lot of stoppages. And I think that's probably what it stemmed from in terms of trying to eliminate that. Um, and I think it's so much down to the players. I think if everyone takes a bit more responsibility, like it, it seemed great this week um, in terms of playing the ball and not, and also getting out the way, um, that just makes for such better matches because you also get conclusions to those rallies. Um, you know, sometimes we have epic 200 shot, I don't know how many me mega rallies and then it just ends in a let and that everyone sort of rolls their eyes and goes, oh, that's just squash, you know. Yeah. So if players can, can find ways around each other, I think it's just so much better. And ultimately it's down to them because as we've seen this week, everyone's talking about how refreshing it is to see the clean matches. And mm. I think that almost shows where we are with maybe some of the, I don't know if it's down to the decisions or how players are interpreting them or how players are exploiting them. Um, but it would be nice if, if the difference was the bad match, not, oh, wow, we've had some good matches where there's not been much decisions, you know? Yeah. I think it's a shame that that is actually being celebrated. <laughs> Um, it kind of shows what we're getting used to at the moment. 100%. Do you think uh, these days are there are more, like you said, probably more players attempting to play through interference and play more cleanly and that the, it's more the exception? Is it, is it, do you see maybe a change in that or do you still see? I don't know. Maybe it was, it was better that last tournament, but I think the general trend is we're seeing probably more um excessive blocking and excessive asking uh certainly i, I don't know but yeah from what i'm watching it's uh it's hard to watch at times i think which is a shame yeah. because you're trying to introduce new people to the game and not only does that create issues in terms of the amount of stoppages and that side of it but also understanding the rules because it's so niche it could be the difference between somebody stepping back an inch or not moving an inch. That's the difference between why it's a stroke and a no let. And uh, that's hard enough to understand as it is for pro players. As I think it's often said, you know, you could get the whole top 10 to analyze one decision and they'd have good reasons to give completely opposite decisions um, and good explanations for that. So that just shows how hard it is to officiate. Um, and if we want to attract wider audiences yeah it's a really hard one to solve i'm sure they're definitely trying um but yeah i'd say the responsibility lies a lot with the players because everyone can play the ball that the, the athleticism on show is definitely enough to uh get out the way and get to the ball if if they want to so i think a bit more of a focus on doing that would solve a lot of the issues but with such high stakes, I don't know if you're ever going to get that because ultimately everyone's playing to win. So it's uh, it's really tough. Well, uh, in the ladies game, uh, you might not agree, but I think you probably will. You don't get as much, uh, you don't get as many uh, stoppages. Uh, it, it seems to be a little bit more uh, free free uh, flowing. Um, I would agree. Your, yeah. your girlfriend, I believe, is Jasmine Hutton, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, that's correct. That's right. Yeah, so she's been playing some some incredible squash uh, the last couple of years. She's seen her ranking uh, move up. I think she's uh, twenty three in the world right now. But, uh, could be wrong there, but uh, you know, there's uh, there's so much parity like the men uh, right around that ranking as well. So uh, how has mm -hmm. um, you know her recent success and move into the top uh, thirty? How's that inspired you? And how did the two of you? Uh, do you, do you help each other with your respective uh, games or is it more of yeah. a away from the game re relationship? Well, I'll, I'll just note, she she made it to the top 20, so she's... Oh, she's top yeah. 20 now. Okay. She was. She I, I don't know if she is this she week. Was. It changes every week now, but yeah, I'll give her, yeah. I'll give her that shout out because it's... Uh, Sorry, she, Jasmine. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> I've sorted it anyway. But uh, yeah, we definitely spur each other on and 
there's obviously, you know, we were not always going to be in the same headspace or motivation level at the same time. So it's great to, you know, we, we train together a lot of the time and we're in the vicinity of each other's training sessions, you know, most days really. So to have each other, to motivate each other and spur each other on, pick each other up, train together. It's great. Yeah. We, it definitely works really well. Brilliant, Charlie. Well, I hope you uh, you get a chance to check out the horseshoe because I know your dad would appreciate. <laughs> Maybe Neil Young might. They they tend to drop in there like these old legends. They just drop by. They bring their guitar and uh, and set up shop. So you never know who you might run into uh, if it's still open. But that uh, it's an iconic <laughs> venue in, in Toronto. I'll check it out after the tournament, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah, after the tournament because you don't. You know, you might get stuck <laughs> there all night. So. Yeah. Well, Charlie, awesome. uh, really, really enjoyed uh, this today, and I want to wish you all the best at the BNR uh, Classic there in Toronto, and all the best going forward. Keep up the great squash. Thanks very much, Jerry. Yeah, it's been great chatting, and uh, hopefully catch up again soon. All the best. Yeah, would love to. Yeah, take care. Thanks. See you later. Well, all the best to uh, Charlie as Optasia approaches, and many thanks to him for spending time with me today. Uh, he'll have his London fan base in his corner for a very, very interesting first-round match, as we talked about, against uh, Abdul Al-Tamimi, a match I figure he probably uh, feels he's got a shot at. Um, we've seen this with so many of the top players that were so, so many players that have been on the cusp over the years, unlike the guys uh, who were shot out of a cannon, like uh, like the Assals, the Frags, the Shurbaggies of the world. But guys like uh, who had to work their way up into uh, the top uh, of the game, uh, Paul Cole, Victor Quinn, Joel Macon, uh, even dating back to uh, former world number ones like David Palmer and Johnny White, those guys uh, weren't always uh, up there competing in the uh, at the top of the game. They had to work their way up. And that's kind of what Charlie's doing, and he's got the opportunity here uh, to uh, to make some inroads. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, guys like uh, Charlie's had a great run lately, and we've seen guy, other guys in the same boat as Charlie, guys like Timmy Brownell, who've been making, uh, you know, taking baby steps, struggling uh, a little bit to get over that hump. So these guys, uh, I, I think they just need one or two breakthrough wins, and then they'll have that little bit extra that they need. I think it's uh, basically it's the mental side of it where they, they know that they have the game uh, to compete with the, the top players in the world and to win those matches. Even for a guy like Abdullah Al-Tamimi, I mean, he's had some big wins, but he's also had some losses to guys that uh, you figure, uh, you know, if he's going to be beat, if he's beating Paul Cole and other top players like that, uh, he should be able to win against guys that are ranked well below him, but he's, he's, uh, he's lost a few of those matches, so... Uh, a guy like him, he's probably looking at this match too as one that he uh, he needs to win and ones that one that he should win. So it should be it should be a great match to start that event. Uh, with any luck, uh, we'll have uh, Optasia event chairman Charlie's dad Danny Lee on just prior to to the event to break it all down. Um, now, just looking at the the Canary Wharf, which is ongoing right now, we've got uh, some great matches. I mean, Mustafa, Saul, Victor, Quinn, they they aired their their dirty laundry there uh, a few weeks back, and uh, that should be an interesting match. Best best of three, and uh, who knows? Obviously, you, uh, Assal's the favorite there, but Victor probably has the bit between his teeth and will not want uh, to lose that match. Uh, he's not going to go down without a fight, I don't think. Uh, we've got uh, Joel Macon and Diego Elias. Now, that's going to be interesting. Uh, will Joel be able to you know, make it physical enough and uh, take Diego into the deep waters? And will that um, will that hurt Diego? I don't think it will. Uh, I mean, Diego seems to be very, very fit now. So uh, it's good. that's going to be a very interesting match. We've got Paul Cole and Kareem Abdul-Gawad. Um, we'll see... You know, the best of three format may suit Gawad. I mean, it's not, you know, he can leave it all out there and know that it's only uh, at the most three games. So, um, and then uh, also a match that I think is going to be well worth mm -hmm. watching is uh, Ali Farag and uh, Ian Yao Ning. Uh, that should be a good one. We'll just see uh, how far along Farag is in his, uh, on his road to recovery. Uh, he, under normal circumstances, you would think he, 
he should have a fairly uh, straightforward uh, time with Yen, but uh, he's Yen's been playing well, and uh, he's not going to go down without a fight either. And we've seen, you know, what happened with with Paul Cole. Paul uh, wasn't uh, feeling his best, and uh, Yen took it took advantage of it and won that match. So Ali's going to have to be uh, firing on all cylinders if he's going to. Uh, uh, come away with with a straightforward win here. So some some big matches uh, there in round two of that event. It's uh, should be a good one. The Canary Wharf. So squash TV. I'll be firing uh, that up uh, tonight to watch uh, some of those matches that I can stay up uh, a bit late to watch. Uh, it's a bit too. Uh, some of the matches will be on quite early in the morning here, so I won't be able to. Uh, to stay up and watch all of them. But yeah, looking forward to that. And uh, just in terms of the podcast itself, we have uh, coming up uh, Squash, Guinness world record holder and former uh, Dubai Squash League nemesis of mine, Alex Preston, coming on to talk about breaking the world record for the world's longest ever squash match. Now, obviously, that's not a competitive match. This is a just going out there and playing squash a game of squash for as long as they could and uh, we're going to sort of talk about uh, what went into that world record what it was all about what the record is if there was one uh, that was held before that Uh, I did see at the time I was watching uh, I saw a bit of the YouTube footage and it did look quite painful they were barely able to uh, lift a racket up uh, there at the end of it but uh, looking forward to fleshing that out amongst other things uh, Alex is a very good player himself he played uh, competitively in New York when he lived there here in Dubai uh, played in the Premier League uh, against my team, uh, which was a lot of fun. I, I actually play Alex and I played a couple of times, I believe, and um, looking forward to uh, talking about all of that and what he's up to now that he's back in England and how squash is treating him uh, over there. Uh, and again, obviously, uh, Danny Lee hopefully will be coming on and a few surprises uh, coming up as well. So stay tuned. Lots to look forward to on the In Squash podcast. Appreciate all of you. Many thanks for listening. And we'll be talking to you very soon. Goodbye now.